In the name of the Father and the Son and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. So one of the things that's different about Greenfield over, say, the last, I don't know, 10 years is that uh, you all travel a lot more. Like, I never know who's in town any given week. Like, you know, are they out west? Are they down south? Are they up north? Um, And those of you who do travel, you know what it feels like uh, to always be on the move. And, you know, the next day we're going to be here, and the next day we're going to be here. And... um, And it turns out that that's exactly uh, what Jesus and his disciples were doing in in the lesson that Bill just read for us. They are on the road. In fact, when you read Luke's gospel, it almost sounds like a travel journal. I mean, he is always on the way. And in this case, he is on his way to Jerusalem and across. A few years ago, thanks to the Lilly Foundation, Uh, Our family was able to take a wonderful sabbatical. We were able to travel uh, in Italy and France. And one of the things I remember about that is that almost every day I had to go to an ATM in whatever town we were in. (laughs) Apparently, they only allow you to take out a certain amount of money a day. And so money was always on my mind as we were traveling. Where would I get cash for the next day? And again... Money seems to have been on Jesus' mind as he and his disciples traveled as well. So Luke 10, Jesus' followers are not to take money with them when they go off on their mission. In the very same chapter, uh, Jesus tells the story that we had last week. You remember the Good Samaritan pays the innkeeper to take care of this stranger. Woe to you who are rich! Jesus warns in Luke 6. Luke 12, Jesus tells a parable about a rich fool. Luke 17, there's a story about a rich man who is consigned to hell because of his failure to help a poor man, Lazarus. The very next chapter, another rich man decides not to follow Jesus, presumably because it would mean giving up too many things. Along the journey, Jesus is very interested in money and what people are doing with their money. And I know exactly what you're thinking right now. This is the first Sunday back at two services. I thought I had two months before the stewardship campaign so I could be here today. No. And I know that some of you listened to Joel Olstein before you came this morning who told you that what God wants most for you is to make you rich. And uh, because uh, apparently the Gospel of Luke was left out of the translation that Joel reads from, just as the miracle stories were left out of Thomas Jefferson's translation of the Bible. This is a message for another day. Really, I'm just setting the table, as my mother used to say to me. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and he passes through Jericho. So we don't have a map, but if we had a map, you would realize that Jericho is not on the way from Galilee to Jerusalem. Jericho is down the road. We said this last week. It's down a long, windy, downhill road. In other words, 
Jesus goes out of his way for this encounter with Zacchaeus, who Luke tells us is a tax collector and very rich. And as you will hear very soon, a good friend of the Beatles. But that's a whole other story. The Romans uh, were actually dependent on these tax collectors in order to govern their far-flung empire. John the Baptist, you remember, earlier in the gospel had warned them, um, collect no more than the amount prescribed to you. But very few tax collectors actually avoided that corruption. And the fact that Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector probably means that he is not only very rich, but also very corrupt. He has probably defrauded and jilted just about everybody in town. So Zacchaeus doesn't get a lot of invitations to the Labor Day barbecue, or the bar mitzvah, or the, the marriage that's taking place. Um, now, of course, the thing that we most associate with Zacchaeus is he is short of stature. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. We used to sing that in Sunday school. However, this is not the time to trot out your favorite little people jokes. There is no indication in the story that Zacchaeus is suffering from some kind of Napoleonic complex. We do know that he has to climb a tree because he is having trouble seeing. But the most significant thing about that is that he's trying. And maybe um, he wants to just keep Jesus at a comfortable distance, but he does want to see. And in that sense, Zacchaeus is sort of the precursor of all of the seekers that you hear so much about today. We don't know why he's seeking Jesus. I mean, maybe he's just curious. Maybe he feels guilty for all of the things that he has done to people. Maybe he is feeling lonely and cut off from everybody or empty inside despite all the things that he has. Maybe he's just humming that old tune that becomes more familiar as we get older. Is this all that there is? We don't really know. We don't even know if he knows. The story doesn't tell us. Probably because Luke is more interested not in what Zacchaeus is thinking, but in what the crowd is thinking about Zacchaeus and about Jesus. Because when Jesus sees Zacchaeus up there in the tree, you will note he doesn't give him the tongue lashing that he really deserves. Instead, he invites himself to Zacchaeus's home. And then comes the time for the crowd. That's us, the crowd, who speak up. He has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner, Luke says. Luke says Zacchaeus is a sinner. And the crowd, with one voice, says, yes. The delegation from Oakland County says, yes, we cast 10 votes. He is a sinner. The delegation from Macomb County, well, we hadn't wanted the vote to go this way, but yes, he's a sinner. The delegation from the UP, who would have thought anyone on our opinion, but yes, it's unanimous, he is a sinner. And this meal, this experience with Jesus turns out to be life-changing for Zacchaeus. 
Jesus not only enters his home, he enters his heart. So much so that Zacchaeus is moved to put his money where his heart is. He doesn't simply give what the law requires. He goes way beyond it. He is more than generous. And so Jesus gets the last word in the story. Today, he says, salvation has come to this house. You remember earlier in Luke's gospel in the Christmas story, the angel announces, today, a savior has been born in the city of David. You remember when Jesus preaches his inaugural sermon in Nazareth, he closes the Bible and he says, today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today, salvation has come to this house. So this is just one of those moments when God seems particularly close, particularly clear. And maybe you have had a moment like that in your life when it just seemed like something was moving in your life, where you saw things just a little more clearly. Maybe you saw yourself a little more clearly, or you saw a relationship with someone differently, or you recognized finally a path that you needed to take, or you saw a particular social issue from a different point of view. And it's not like I was blind and now I see. It's just that I see a little more clearly. And this is one of those moments for Zacchaeus. Today, salvation has come to this man. But notice, when Jesus speaks, he is not speaking to Zacchaeus. He is speaking to the bystanders to the sniveling, judging crowd, telling them that he, Zacchaeus, is also a child of God. And so the great verdict of this story is really not the money. It is to say that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. So the story, of course, can be read from the point of view of Zacchaeus. I mean, here is a man who is so far down, there is no way for him to pull himself up. He has cheated so many. He has committed so many terrible crimes. Really, how can he be saved? But the good news is that he is a seeker. He is at least there. He is straining to see Jesus over the crowd. And it turns out that that is a wonderful place for Jesus to be able to see you. You know, for some time it has been very fashionable, especially in these big mega churches, to have what they call seeker services. You've probably heard of seeker services. I tend to be a little skeptical, thinking, oh, the theology is a little shallow. It's a little more entertainment than it is worship. However, for all of that, the good thing is that there is at least a sensitivity towards those who are seeking. There is a determination to reach out to those who have been either away from the church for a time or who have never been a part of the church. And that is a passion 
that I find lacking in most mainline churches and among most mainline Christians who I know. And that worries me. It worries me, first of all, because of the future of the church. If you travel in Europe, you will go to visit all of these wonderful cathedrals. And what are they? They are Christian museums. Because only 8% of the population in Western Europe even goes to church anymore. But it worries me even more in terms of our own relationship with Jesus. Because the Jesus that I meet in the Gospels was always looking for new ways to reach out to those who were lost. To draw the circle wider. To invite others to come in. And I wonder what it says about our relationship with him if we do not share that passion. And I can already hear the responses again in your mind. I don't want to be like those Jehovah's Witnesses. They're so obnoxious. And I get that. And the question is, when do we stop playing that defensive card about what we don't want to do and get on with really thinking about what we do want to do? How will you and I reach out to the lost? For example, I am not one, surely you know this, I am not one who wants to preach sermons um, that scare the hell out of people. Though I am not one to say, there, there are some people in this society who will only be reached by that kind of preaching. I am not the one to do it. But that should not keep me from trying with every fiber of my being to find ways to love people into heaven. Here we are in a world that very clearly says you are worth only as much as your last success, your last sale, your last A on the exam. The gospel says no. God really does love you right now just as you are so much that he gave his only son. Here we are in a world that will teach our children over the next few months that they really do not have enough and therefore they are not they are nobodies. And the gospel says, yes, there is enough. And you are already somebody. Here we are in a world that is afraid of letting go, especially at the end of life. The gospel says, he that believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. We call this good news for a reason. Keeping it to myself is like a young romantic so much in love. Do you remember those days? And trying to keep all of those feelings bottled up. She, he has to tell somebody. And it worries me that there is not more of that in me and among us. So I think maybe this story is better listened to from the point of view of the crowd. So here, in a gospel that, let's face it, is almost uniformly critical in its treatment of the rich. Here, today, salvation comes to a rich man who is almost certainly corrupt. Because the qualification 
to being embraced by Jesus is not that you are poor or that you are so good. The only qualification is that you are lost. So just a few chapters earlier in the 15th chapter of Luke is nothing more than three stories strung together like pearls. A shepherd who left the 99 and went searching for the one who was lost. Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. Followed by a woman who spends the whole day looking for a lost coin. Rejoice with me, she says. There is joy among the angels of God for one sinner who repents. And then comes that wonderful story of a lost son and a prodigal father who is so excited to see his son on the horizon that he throws him a party because my son was lost and now is found. Today, salvation has come to this house and the crowd is as shocked as was that elder brother when his prodigal was welcomed home. And of course, it is right at this point that Zacchaeus begins to show us a thing or two about Jesus. That there are actually consequences to Jesus intruding into our homes and into our hearts. There are behavioral and, yes, there are financial implications. This grace is not cheap. He comes to us just as we are and has no intention of leaving us just the way we were. So Zacchaeus is transformed from a taker to a giver, a grateful and generous giver. And I suspect some of us today will see ourselves in the person of Zacchaeus. You are a seeker. You may not have climbed up a tree this morning, but here you are at church to see Jesus. Just a little more clearly, though maybe at a safe distance, I don't want to get too involved. And you know what? That's great. Because the story is very clear that if you just take a baby step towards him, he'll take a giant step towards you. Others, on the other hand, and I count myself among these, we will find ourselves in the crowd. We've been with Jesus for a long time now, longer than we can remember. If Jesus is going to have dinner with anybody, it ought to be us. And how does it feel to have Jesus look right over your head at someone who, if you were honest, you would say is beneath you? So the story leaves us with an assignment. If we are going to stay close to Jesus and share bread with him, then we better be willing, even intentional, to get close to sinners. Because he still comes to seek and save the lost. And if we want to be with him, we're going to have to go where he is going. By such scandalous grace, salvation comes to your house and to mine and to this house today and always. Amen.